0: I think from an operational leadership role from my level, it's about over time building the right team, being able to develop and access the right information, ensuring real alignment, both objectively and from a trust point of view, and then putting the right investments and the right management system in place. Welcome to Create New Futures thought-provoking conversations with leaders, experts, and interesting minds. Join us as we explore ideas and reflect on practices that you can use and apply to create and shape the future. With your host, author and strategy consultant, Aviv Shahar.
1: Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with successful leaders to explore how you can create new futures for you and for your organization. This is a V event. Today I'm speaking with Jeff Galanat. Jeff is the Senior Vice President of Global Manufacturing Operations at Cisco Systems. He is responsible for leading Cisco's global manufacturing and logistics operations. And he also leads the teams responsible for the design of Cisco's global operational network the supply chain security, and the business management of Cisco's operational partners. Before joining Cisco, Jeff was the vice president of global manufacturing at the Lenovo Group. And before joining Lenovo, Jeff spent 23 years at IBM, both in the U.S. and in China with roles in manufacturing, procurement, and supply chain. In my collaboration with Jeff, I have found him to be a thoughtful leader. He leads with both head and heart, and he brings a unique combination of passion to the human side of business in helping people grow together with a rigorous operational discipline and focus on learning and continuous improvement. Jeff, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thanks,
0: Peter. Glad to be here.
1: What have I missed in my introduction that uh, is important to uh, share about you up front?
0: Uh, well, uh, I've been in a committed and exclusive relationship with a wonderful woman for 40 years, uh, and I have two uh, wonderful, self sufficient, intelligent, creative children. So, and I think we can go on from there.
1: <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, th- these are the really high marks of success in life, those two. So so uh, important to, uh, to share them up front. So let me dive right in and ask you first, of all the things you do, because your role is so complex and there's so many different frontiers you're engaged, of all the things you do, what do you enjoy most at work?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I, there's a few things that I would highlight. So, first of all, I really like uh, what I call true accountability, knowing that if you don't execute daily and if you don't execute well, something really happens. I have a job where that's a big feature of what I do, and there's a real ability to see day to day real results. So, that's one thing. And by the way, that's both. Physically, I can go out and see our operations and and logically, I can see systems, tools, teams, processes change. I really like the global nature of my job. I really, really love the diversity of culture, experiences, the different challenges that come from different people and different um, modes of operation all around the world and I also like, as you mentioned, I have a very complex job, but it has a lot of breadth and a lot of visibility. I'm I one of the unique positions in Cisco where I can actually see the business progress, orders, shipments, et cetera, on a day-by-day basis. And I can, I can tie lots and lots of things together, uh, which I really enjoy. And I really do enjoy integrating. So being able to uh, to integrate across our functions, our subfunctions, our services, but also our partners, our businesses, and our global teams. And then finally, uh, I guess I'm a really, really lucky guy in the sense that I get to work in a great company. And uh, I have a truly extraordinary group of people, uh, both in terms of their values and, and their talents to work for. They're competent, they're committed. And I think, as you mentioned before, they're human. And uh, we have a very great humanity in the team and in Cisco. So, there's a lot about my job I actually like.
1: This first idea, the, the first uh, attribute that you identified, your focus and your passion for accountability, can you trace what is the, the origin point in your life where you became aware that accountability is, was going to be part of how you view yourself and your engagement at, at work? Where is it... Uh, Where are you first time consciously aware that accountability is an important value?
0: Actually, very early in my life. uh, I came from, like many people of my generation in America, I came from some very, very hardworking immigrant people. Uh, My grandmother, my grandfather was a tradesman. Both of them were tradesmen. One of my grandmothers was the first uh, female supervisor in the Detroit uh, municipal system. And my maternal grandmother who may have been the most important person in my life, certainly early in my life, was actually, uh, she didn't have a lot of skills. She was actually the towel woman at an integrated high school during Detroit, during the race riot periods. And I didn't really understand the impact that kind of role, no matter what you do, could have until at her funeral, I saw a hundred teenagers, mostly black, come to celebrate her. My mom and dad were both very driven people as a result of that. My father ran a small business. He worked 60, 70 hours a week and played in a jazz band on the weekend. And my mother was a successful local realtor in a town where women weren't necessarily welcome to open businesses. So I guess, in a way, very early on, the notion of accountability was instilled in me. In fact, I think any strength carried to an extreme becomes a bit of a weakness And in my case, uh, because my parents were so driven, things were a bit vacant at my house. And so I filled in the gap of seeking attention and approval by achievement. Mm. And so uh, I think most folks... Who get to senior leadership have some place they're trying to fill. And mine was to fill the being seen and recognized for my achievement. But that left me with a very, very large sense of of both examples of accountability and Mm. self-accountability for that reason.
1: Right. And we will come back in a little bit to your earlier journey and, and how you shaped and how you navigated your professional career. But let me ask about your role now is you're leading this large, complex, global team. What are some of the key leadership principles that, that shape your approach to managing a large organization? What's the philosophy that you have in mind as you look at leading a, a large, complex team?
0: By the way, that's evolved very much over time. So I know we're speaking a lot here to people earlier in their career, and I can say that that will definitely evolve uh, as one gains experiences, changes roles, gets different experiences. I think at a very high level, my leadership philosophy has evolved from, you could say at a very high level management to leadership, but a little bit more specifically, I've moved from a place where I think that it's my job to really understand things and manage and direct things. And I call that guy super commander, Jeff, into a place where I really realized that my best purpose in, is to context the team, put them in the right situations to succeed, connect them and support them. So I view myself now more fundamentally as an advisor and an enabler of the team. So I think that's one uh, critical principle, I think, for any leader of any significant organization. That's a so a different vision of my role. I think from an operational leadership role from my level, it's about over time building the right team, being able to develop and access the right information, ensuring real alignment, both objectively and from a trust point of view, and then putting the right investments and the right management system in place to do. So that's how I believe my present role is you know, at a very, very high level. Is it's a combination of sort of integrating and managing the information, the investments, and the team to make sure that it's operating at its best. Uh, Another portion of that, though, is my own personal leadership, which that's definitely evolved and and is even still working on at this point in my life of really doing the essential things as a leader that help the team the most.
1: So. You said right at the outset that you expressed your passion to people, and you said, all the people on my team are humans, and, and you highlight that, and sometimes you highlight that I find even more than other leaders. Say a little more about what guides your your focus and, and your passion about people, specifically what informs that kind of of awareness that, okay, I have different people around the table. I <laughs> My job as a leader is to bring forward their their best talent and their best capability, and therefore I'm partly a coach. I've I've seen you leaning into that capacity. What informs, what inspires that approach, that mindset as a leader for you?
0: Well, I think in this regard, I'm actually continuing to evolve and I'm probably a late bloomer. Probably I didn't really begin to get settled in on these things until I left the mainstream of IBM in 1999, 20 years ago, and I went to to run and establish a joint venture in China that they had established that had almost no foreigners in it, actually me, and about 30 people and about six leaders at the time. And I think, uh, you know, that was a really, 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 that was the first formative place. Uh, But before that, I'd been kind of well-trained. As a leader and a manager. But I had never been in a situation up until then where I really, really got with the notion of people and how to really develop people, how to think about people, how to be a leader with people. And you know, it's interesting. I learned in China that the core, all people are basically the same. You know, they, they want the same fundamental things, they want to they take care of their families, they want to be listened to, they want to be seen, and they can be great if the circumstances are right. Uh, and the conditions are right. I was a foreigner at that time. So I began for the first time to understand what it need, what it means to need to be included. Hmm. Before that, I was the includer. Uh, in that environment, I was the includee and very much dependent on other people. There were no other alternatives. And I can remember the first day I got there, I was in the office. That w- we just had a typhoon. The office was leaking. There were chickens running around literally in the back of, of the property. And I looked around and I said, well, you're here, you've invested, you're here. This is it. There's no place to go. You've got a group of people that you hardly know around you and you're going to sink or swim with them. And I think from that place, I learned to lead from a position of ownership and love. Mm. But I led in that situation from the love of the business, love of the team, grow together. But I was the senior leader and there weren't a lot of checks or accountability on all of that so i learned about people through that and then i learned a really important lesson when it came back to cisco where i went back under operational stress in a complex organization and i was remote and i defaulted into some really reactive and negative behaviors because i was fearful and uh what i really had to figure out uh in my time in cisco is how do you consciously grow back into that feeling of ownership and love and support for the organization when in fact you didn't build it and you're there and you have a very very intelligent group of people from all around the world and you got to figure out you know you've got that authority that a position that information that power you got to figure out what am i really going to do with it um so that led me to really think about this a lot more
1: yeah and i'm going to come back to this um again but since you already mentioned the time in china Take me through this decision point in your life. Why do you take this role in China? What year was that? What time was that?
0: It was 1999 and I was 40 years old. I had a a middle schooler and someone entering high school. My wife had just graduated from uh, the School of Social Work at UNC after going through three institutions and uh, three tries. So it, it hardly seemed like the right moment. What happened was we established a joint venture. It had been incubated by a retired executive. I got a phone call from a friend of mine and said, they're looking for a general manager. And I just thought you should know. And the reason he probably did that was he and I had both spent some time working in Asia and he had an idea of my appreciation. And I'd actually talked to him about the fact I thought that whole situation was about to really explode and change. And so I called the one of the guys on the board of the JV, who was a ex-boss uh, of mine, and I said hey, Larry, I heard you're looking for a general manager. And he said, yeah, I am. Who do you have in mind? And I said, how about me? And he said, Jeff, that's the two-level demotion. And you're about to become ready to be a vice president at an IBM. And you've got you know a beautiful home and two kids and they're getting high school. I mean, what are you actually thinking? And I said to him, I said, well, I'm thinking a couple things. First of all, I may never get a chance to actually build and establish an enterprise again. And uh, I said, the other thing is, there's something really important going on in that world. And I don't want my children to spend their entire life encased in a, you know, a sort of, I called it a white bread suburb their whole life. I wanted them to see the things that I had seen and have a different appreciation for the world. So I had to lobby for it, actually, Aviv, about three months of lobbying and some previous, you know, favors were called in. And that's how I got the job. And most people thought that I was absolutely crazy. But I thought, to me, it was just obvious. It was obviously the right thing to do for some reason.
1: It was an adventurous move. And what are your children saying today in retrospect about their experience? How many years have they lived in in China?
0: Uh, Let's see. My daughter went through middle school and high school in China. My son went through all of high school. They both have different experiences out of it. My son got out of it learning to be safe in a big city and feel and feel good. He now lived in New York City when he went out of home. Uh, he now li- lives in the Bay Area. Uh, he doesn't have a big wanderlust to travel and see, but he has a great appreciation for diversity and mu- a big div- appreciation for urban life. My daughter uh, soaked it all in, traveled every chance she can and still does. Uh, she's an environmental biologist and uh, still travels around quite a bit. Both of them benefited tremendously by the diversity and the experiences of being the other.
1: What are the other important lessons from having lived and worked in China through these years, time of tremendous change, and you were there seeing the the entire transformation of China and the broader region uh, of Asia? What are some other highlights that you can share? Uh,
0: Well, that was... Uh, some someday I probably should <laughs> should have written a book about those uh, s- seven to ten years. They were things happened so fast, so much was going on, so all the time, so quickly. There was so much interest, and there was so much change everywhere, constantly. I got to be very, very, very much more adaptable than mm-hmm. what I would normally have been. Uh, my emotional and mental agility was constantly tested. Basically, no systems, tools, uh, an enterprise that had a probably less than a $50 million of revenue and about 30 people to $5 and $5.6 billion engineering services, procurement services, built 98% of IBM's laptops and 70% of its servers and built all of our partners' products and service the market in China. And we had 5,000 employees and over 1,000 professional people, and that happened in seven years. So. There You can imagine just living in that station, and it was a constant challenge of alignment and support and bringing in resources, et cetera. So from a business management point of view, I think it was extraordinarily formative, and it gave me a tremendous opportunity, a laboratory, to not only work on business issues, but cultural uh, issues, et cetera. So I think there were a lot of really, really important lessons I mentioned earlier around mutual dependency and support. And also being able to collect resources outside the enterprise to help its growth. So there was far more packed into those seven to ten years than I could ever imagine. I actually would include in that the last three years when I left, when I got a call from the CEO of IBM, when I was running the JV, and he said to me in the same phone call, he said, "We're going to sell the PC business to one of two buyers. You're going to have to show the business because they want the assets. The one of the your enterprise is one of the two or three things they're interested in. You're going to have to disengage the relationship with the Chinese partner and not get us in trouble. I'm sending over a general manager for the 30% of the business that's going to stay in IBM. You're going to help separate that business and determine who's going to go and who's going to stay and the contracts, et cetera. And we're selling you you know, as part of the transaction. I got that all in <laughs> the same phone call. <laughs> so after the first six or seven years of the growth, I had that phone call. And then I had two years where there were 20 vice presidents in the new Lenovo group and. I was the only one that had worked extensively both in the U.S. and China. So in addition to my operational integration job, I did some interesting, I encountered some very interesting cultural integration. So those 10 years or so, whatever it was, were just, you know, they were like a a blender of learning and experiences and and growth.
1: It certainly sounds like there is a book in there one day when you get the time and the mental space to write about it. So you spoke earlier about your parents and grandparents and some of the setting at home. And and then you took us to IBM. So let's catch the, the four, these formative years of you growing up, Mm -hmm. perhaps now into your teenage years, what inspires you as a teenager and take me from there to how do you make your first professional steps that ultimately will bring you to IBM?
0: Sure. So I was, uh, pretty determined by the time I was 14 or 15 years old that I was not going to live in the town I was in. I was in a small kind of closed industrial town in Illinois and it just didn't seem like a place that could meet the aspirations I had for my life. So I made a very decision early in high school even that I was going to try to go to school out of state. I was going to try to go somewhere different. And we used to travel through uh, Atlanta, Georgia on an annual family vacation. I used to see Georgia Tech. Uh, it turned out that one of my best friend's father was an alumni there. And uh, and so I wound up visiting several schools, but uh, George Tech was had a very high proportion of National Merit Scholars. I was one. It was uh, it was the preeminent school in the discipline that I had actually decided I was the most interested in, in industrial engineering. And, and so although I didn't have the financial means to do all of it on my own, I took the risk and went in there out of state. It was also reasonable to be an out-of-state student. So I went there, and one of the other big advantages, which I heard through my friend's father, was they had a cooperative program. So every alternate quarter for your first four years of school, you went to work in industry as an engineer in a job. So I I started doing that, and I had three different cooperative assignments, very interesting, different. I worked in a pacemaker factory under super clean conditions. I worked in a foundry built in 1895 sort of the exact opposite in terms of workplace. And I actually had a, an accident there. And then I went to work for IBM. And that uh, work in IBM eventually led me as I graduated to sort of more focus on that kind of business. And then when I graduated from Georgia Tech, I had seven job offers. And interestingly enough, the first interview and offer I got was from their facility in Raleigh, which is where I eventually went to work. I actually went and interviewed them again after I got... The other six offers, because that took me so long. I didn't have any recency on that experience. My sense and my, all my notes told me it was the best one, but I'd seen so many other things and had so many other options. I asked them if I could come back and see them again, and they said yes, which I thought was quite interesting. And I entered there at a very, very, very lucky time. Mm. They were moving, they had a really, really advanced management team, very people sensitive. They were scaling up at that time high volume production, which meant they were going to build a hundred thousand displays in a single year. They'd never done anything like that in the company. They were investing and they hired a number of engineering graduates. So I went there and uh, I started getting messages quickly that I was doing okay. I got uh, an early assignment into the better part of the team. I got one of the first PCs ever issued in IBM, you know, learn VisiCalc, did, made my job easier. They put me in a several positions, I won't go into the details, that there were two to three years earlier than they would typically think about putting people in. And then I realized something really big was happening when the head of the site who was my mentor called me in and said, he said, to to the experiences, once they send me to an assessment school that they ran internally, and he said, you're the youngest guy ever sent you there, and I've never failed, and I don't expect to now. I was like, no pressure. Uh, And then they sent me to corporate staff when I was 27 years old. I had an eight-week-old daughter. And they sent me there to work on the company's operating plan, and then I became the assistant to the vice president of manufacturing. So uh, that happened when I was 30 years old. So I was very, very lucky. Aviv. I walked into the best possible company at its height in the best possible circumstances for my discipline in an industry that I liked with a team that was committed to people and a very aggressive leadership development program. So I was very lucky.
1: At what point do you get this confidence sense? Yes, I'm going to be good at this. I'm going to excel here. I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. At what point do you get this sense?
0: Uh, Pretty early in the career. Just uh, people kept giving me roles that I felt like I was always the youngest person in position and in room the first seven to 10 years of my career. And so I felt like I mean, every one of those things felt like a big challenge. And when I left them, that was okay. And people would hand me another thing like that. And people constantly told me, well, you're really young. You've never been here. So I had a lot of signals early on. The move to New York and their willingness to invest in me in a role like that was really, really big. The trust I got being the assistant of the vice president of all of IBM's manufacturing operations, which were all divisionalized and held by positions were held by senior vice presidents the networking and the trust I got at a very early age. For sure by then I knew something was different.
1: Was there a an important mentor or coach or leader that you looked up to that uh, took you, so to speak, under his or her wings and yeah. who, who was that? Tell 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 a bit about that experience and
0: there were several. The the hiring person was almost entirely committed he had done such a great job of staffing. He, was the, he basically was the feeder for the entire site. Uh, he was a great mentor. His boss was really, really well-connected and very smart. His boss was the senior executive of, of IBM in the entire region, and he and I got along very well. Uh, so, I had a lot of support. When I went to New York, I gathered additional support and mentors from the rest of the community. So I felt like I was very, very well cared for. A lot of people were really trying to help me.
1: What is it you're doing through these steps and stages to maximize the learning, to make sure that you are present to the opportunity and to the learning and the growth that that it provides? What are some internal practices that you are establishing and building in yourself at this time?
0: Well, one thing that I learned very early on in leadership, at that time, IBM was in that site was a mix, of very early in career and extremely experienced professional people who had come from other parts. One of the things I learned right away as a young leader was the importance of listening to people who had substantial experience and gaining their ear, their trust, and their respect. I mean, they could really make you or break you as a leader. Uh, they were the informal leadership of the organization, and they always had time particularly for for younger leaders that were willing to listen and invest with them. Uh, So I did a lot of that early in my career. Every job I had, I would always try to seek out and understand the informal leadership and the real knowledge base of the the team and try to tap into that. I did a lot of uh, more as I progressed, and particularly when I went further in my career, I did a lot more listening to soft things. So I had a lot of opportunity to soak in Different leadership styles, different communication styles, alignment styles, et cetera. When I was at our IBM's corporate headquarters, I was also there, by the way, when Acres was failing. So you could also be there watching executives deal with, you know, the uncertainty and the concern and the disconnection of that. So you know, you know, obviously you learn things from really great people. You also learn some things when things are not going well. So, I, so I listened a lot, and I tried to develop. I tried to identify the people inside the team and the structure that I felt could provide the most learning and value for me and invested in them, you know, took time, listened, asked a lot of questions, tried to engender a spirit of partnership and trust with them. That was probably the biggest thing I did. I didn't, you know, it wasn't, I went on a systematic study or whatever. I just uh, tried to be present and listen.
1: When you talk about informal leaders, the influencers, I imagine not by title, say a little more about, even from the perspective of today of running a large organization, who are these people that actually can make or break an organization and can lead to success? Who are those informal leaders and and why are they so important in, in your experience?
0: Yeah, you know, back then when the information wasn't as fluid and there wasn't there was more of a hierarchy in a team they were often positionally established they were team leaders or people who had moved further in their careers you could identify them relatively simply and you just had to check out which ones had gotten there by time and tenure versus which ones really knew what was happening but even back then and even now much more fluid and much more knowledge based and much harder to ascertain it's still the same things you know who are people going to who is it that has the interconnective knowledge? not necessarily the subject matter knowledge, but how do things function here? How do you get things done? how do they get things successfully done? Who is attracting people uh, to work with them on projects and be the best kinds of uh, the best talent magnets? Who do people reference when things get difficult? you know what's the name that keeps getting called in every time? We need to work on something you know that's how i identified it in the past it looks different it feels different now it's much it's much less position driven it's much more knowledge and information driven and it's much more healthy these days but i think you can if you have your if you have your senses up and your antenna up and you're listening you can still easily you can you still easily find them
1: well i think what you're alerting us here uh, for is this idea that, okay, there is the organizational uh, design, organizational structure, the boxes and, and the titles, but you're actually alerting us that there is a whole something else, which is more the what I will call the social topography
0: of absolutely the,
1: of the living entity we call an organization. And some people carry, as you said, this interconnected knowledge of how to get things done and where you can find the resources you need. And, and actually, there is no substitution to getting engaged and discovering that operating system of an organization if you are to lead effectively.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: One of um, the core observations, and we have talked about it, uh, that guides my work is that, Jeff, we call ourselves the sapient species. By which we mean that we are aware of our awareness and conscious of our consciousness. But, you know, given what we're just talking about, the um, social topography and and becoming aware how an organization operates, I find that most organizations, they do operate quite unconsciously. That is to say, we are not operating at the level that we believe and claim to be by describing ourselves as, as sapient beings. And the result, we often find that even with the smartest people around the table, we are collectively, we become unwise. And collectively, we're quite ready to create dysfunction as um, as much as success. And I actually call this the collective stupidity syndrome. That's a syndrome where when you get a group of smart people around you, we seem to be able to not play to each other's strengths and bring forward the best in each other, but rather we make each other dumber or more stupid instead of wiser and more competent. How do you try, how did you try to sidestep dysfunction And... To play to people's strength with when you look at, at your recent roles and bring forward the, the best in people. Because my, again, my premise is unless we lean into that deliberately, consciously, we will by default create collective stupidity. So what would you say for you when you hmm. face the challenge? How do you bring in people, bring up in people the best?
0: Well, the. Big challenge, and I'm certainly not as adept at it as I would like to be. Uh, I'm still learning uh, every day. At that, and I have to say that you know I've I've certainly been aware of many cases where I've <laughs> been in uh, in contributing to uh, what you I guess would call collective stupidity. I think there's a couple of components of that, Aviv. We could unpack. One is you know what, what do I think about in terms of my leadership rules that influence how that goes, and then maybe a, a couple of wor- a couple of comments about. Uh, how I look at individuals uh, in that context. And then maybe how do I think about building a team and leading a team that resists that? So if it's okay, I could give you those three things and we could talk about them. So first of all, just in terms of the construction of the team, I think, you know, I think you got to start with people's values uh, and their real innate capabilities. You know, I think, uh, if you're running a team that doesn't have the right values and the right orders, we're in trouble to begin with. And to me, that stacks up, you know, the larger organization and remit, the team that you're in, and then you. And particularly as a leader, if you're not oriented that way, it's really, really difficult. Uh, if people's self-motivations and their self-fears, you know, they're not even geared right when they come into the conversation. They're not motivated for the collective good. I think you've got to build a team that has People with it that have this sort of learning agility, the capabilities uh, emotionally, but also the persistence when adversity really strikes. I think when people ask me, what do I recruit? I'm looking for curiosity, mental agility, and resiliency. And and I think you got to mix the teams. Diversity is really, really super important. Uh, The skills, the strengths, and the styles and the experience of the team need to be mixed. And to do that, you have to really creative and inclusive environment. And I think trust is the other knitting of the team. So uh, people need to be trustworthy and they need, to be able to del- they need to be able to give trust and hold trust. So when I think about a team that is resistant to many of the things that you're talking about, you know, that's what I'm thinking about when I think about the teams and the people. You know, when, when I think about my leadership, you know, as that team leader, you know, in addition to trying to construct that team carefully and maintain it based on what we just talked about, I think there's some things that I've got to do. So, you know, they're going to sound really, really trite uh, in some cases. And some of them I think are pretty profound principles. One is you got to show up. Mm. So, you know, somebody often says, you know, half the battle is just showing up and being present and visible every day. And and what I mean by that is not just being present, but having the team feel you. Mm. They need to feel the presence, they need to feel that you're there with them, that you want to be there with them. And that feeling engenders the kind of trust and supports the kind of trust that allows the difficult conversations to happen and allows diversity to occur, which are kind of the enemies of collective stupidity. I need to be the person in the room that's probably the most curious. And because people will follow my example and if my example is to dictate and talk and direct, that's what the team will react to. If I'm asking and I'm generally curious, people generally follow with that. I think uh, the point is safety, psychological safety. You mentioned conscious culture, Cisco. Our brilliant HR leader has started something we call conscious culture, and one of the things she openly talks about is the importance of psychological safety. This may be one of the most important things that I've ever discovered, and that is that no one, including me, does their best work when they feel complete when they really feel unsafe. It's not not physiologically possible, and is definitely not psychologically possible. And if people aren't safe, there's a reason, and that reason could be the team dynamic and the trust in the team. It could be them and their ability to match up to the real capabilities and their own expectations. But whatever it is, you know, my role in that environment you're talking about to avoid collective stupidity is to allow people to feel safe enough so they can be their best and express themselves.
1: Let me just pause there for a minute on this point because it's a huge point. Uh, There is a fallacy, especially in the old school, there are many leaders that assumed that they need to engender some fear and some anxiety in their environment because that's how they get the best results out of the people. And the point you're making is so correct in that we now have the scientific evidence supported by brain science, evolutionary biology, the the neural pathways that get engaged when we are under threat and the neural pathways of curiosity and divergent and broad thinking, are these are different circuitries. You cannot be in both at the same time. That's right. And so when we get into the cortisol zone in the brain, which is under threat, under stress, it is true we are not producing the best results. So this idea, this fallacy of just work harder and harder and, and exhaust yourself and if you can press further in the stress zone, now you will probably produce suboptimal results. So that's a very important insight.
0: That's a late-breaking late view in probably the last 10 years. It's partially a gift from my wife and the work that she does. But I have to say, I now, probably the hardest, the most firm position I take this about leadership philosophy is on this point. Because I see so many people that think, Oh you have to give people a little push, you have to give them uh you know a little nudge you ha- or you have to put some real consequences. My view is, and i 'm very fortunate I work in an industry and in a company that has a lot of great people. My view is it's one of my key roles to create that environment of safety. I can do that by the way I behave by you know trying to create a trustful environment, but I also can deal with the things that impact it mm. you know non trustful behavior. People who are fearful legitimately because they don't have the skills or the capability to be successful. I, as a leader, need to try to do my best to create that safety. And I personally believe I have to look at it as an accountable issue, that if that team safety is not there, that it, it is, it is, I have a huge role in identifying it, understanding it, and helping deal with it. I believe in my in- industry, we've got ro- really wonderful, brilliant people. If you tell them what you want them to do, if you give them the right context and you give them the right tools and support, and they actually feel free and safe to do what they want to do, they'll do wonderful things. You don't need to tell my team that they have to make the quarter. They know what they have to do. It, that's crazy you know, for senior leaders to sit in a room and point and direct and tell people what they know they need to do. But, you know, to be honest, Aviv, I was part of that school for parts of my career. And I just have noticed how much different it is when I feel safe and recognized and seen and how much different it is when the team feels safe and recognized and seen both individually and together. So some, one of the principles is you've got to make those decisions when they need to be made.
1: Right. I think that there was another component of the high-functioning team answer you were going to give. But just before you got there... Let me stay one more inquiry with one more inquiry around curiosity. Sure. Because you said you hire for curiosity, agility, and resilience. In your experience, yes. curiosity is a learnable muscle, is a learnable capacity, or it's there or not there? How, what's your experience and point of view about curiosity? Because I, I have observed that it's a bit of both you need to have the the aptitude of curiosity. But in the way you describe this inquisitive mind that inquires first, that is, I do believe, actually is a learnable behavior.
0: I do too. I think there's a predisposition, sort of a genetic wiring for some people to be uh, curious. You you can see it with Four or five-year-olds. Some of them are just absolutely precocious, and the ones that ask 300 questions and are have their hands in everything, exploring everything. But I think in a business and professional setting, anyone can learn to do that. I think it takes safety and it takes curiosity, it takes an environment where that is expected behavior. But it's also a skill. But I think a lot of it has to do with intent. Aviv. You know, people people ask questions and they learn. The question is, why are you doing it? And this was a critical thing for me as a leader. You know, it used to be that I would learn and understand things for the purposes of satisfying my desire to have control. And so I would soak in information and ask a lot of questions and sometimes leave people unsummarized, uh, you know, I didn't even know where I was going. It was in my own head. Mm. If my curiosity is there to not only satisfy my desire, but to ask questions that the team might be thinking about, or ask questions that they should be thinking about in my mind, or just participating in the journey of the learning with them, then that's a different purpose. My purpose there is to actually understand. It's really to really learn. It's really to really align it's there to really help others understand and my integrative skills help when i can summarize and integrate what i've heard in new ways that might give people different insight that's a different purpose of learning altogether than who shot who what didn't get done what do i have to do tomorrow who do you know what's going to happen if my boss asks me this question etc those are two completely different kinds of curiosity So I think the trainable part for me, and maybe for other people, is to have your actual line of questioning and curiosity follow an intent, which is, why are you in this room right now? And what are you trying to do with the learning you're going to get? So I think uh, some of us are always going to be more curious by nature, but I think in a business setting, it's absolutely a learned skill, but it needs to be followed by intent or guided by intent.
1: And one of the ways, obviously, the the idea of curiosity is professionalized in the Air Force practice is this idea of debrief. And the point about debrief is that that we have to learn to debrief both success and also failure. You you mentioned how earlier in your career in, in IBM, you could learn from successful leaders, but also you could learn from where things failed. Could you share, is there any setback or challenge earlier in your career or later where you felt you were struggling with something? And could you share, if not the details of what was uh, the difficulty, but what was it that you were able to learn through challenge, through setback, through something that did not go as, as you hoped or as you thought it should?
0: Yeah, I can, and I'll be glad to because I think it's one of the most important object lessons of my career. So i give you all the really good stuff about my early careers, you know, moving into my early 30s, et cetera. By the time I got to my my mid-30s, I sensed that things were not going very well, and I was not only stalled, but that things may not actually be going very well. And uh, I went to a—and this will go, uh, by the way, with the concept of learning curiosity and your intent— So I went to see a a person I trusted. He was actually our HR leader, just a wonderful salt of the earth, straightforward guy. His name was Stan. And I went to see him and I said, Stan, I'm just, I don't know how to say this, except I'm not feeling really great uh, about what's going on. And uh, so Stan sent me to my first sort of 360 sort of immersive sort of training. And from that training, he helped me debrief the results. And to make a long story short, what wound up happening was that people's impression of me was, this is a really, really smart guy, and he takes a huge amount of pride, and he always wants to be the smartest guy in the room. Mm-hmm. He never asks for help. He's really brilliant, and we can trust him to do what he needs to do, but we don't know him. We don't feel him. We don't trust him. Uh, we're not sure that he has their back. And you know, I was just floored. A bit reactive, because I sensed that that was probably true and the reason, but I was a bit floored by it. And I looked at Stan, and I was in a real conundrum, and I said, I don't know what to do. What do you suggest that I do? And he said, look, he said, this is, it's not great, but it's not a crisis. You know, a lot of, you get the authenticity, the skills to be successful. He just, he said, just do me a favor. He said, just go talk to the these three or four names who are going to be influential in the organization just talk to them and tell them about the feedback and ask them for their help and for them to be vested in your success. Just do that, nothing more. And those were incredibly scary conversations. They strip you there of all of the defenses and the things you've been doing and and you go in and, and it was really hard. And I was really lucky. The three or four conversations I had The people were really, really welcoming. They sat down, they calmed down, they gave me very generally very supportive arguments, uh, supportive comments, but also a lot of coaching. But what was amazing to me about that, Aviv, was not only did I feel better, their perceptions of me and their willingness to be vested in my success and coach and help me changed overnight. I just had never asked them. Mm. So that was an early one. But I think we all, you know, repeat mistakes. And You know, to a degree, I did it again after I came into Cisco, where I got pretty directive and pretty reactive. And that was a really hard transition because there's what I really, really had to change because it wasn't just, you know, getting along with some people and asking for help. This was me fundamentally confronting my own intentions and my own fears. So that was a a much bigger journey.
1: Say a little more about this idea of confronting your fears because we hardly talk about that in the corporate space. Yeah. But In the end of the day, when we operate out of fear, we create a large shadow in, yeah. because there are then capabilities, skills, ingenuity, creativity that we hold back because for some reason or another, we got an idea of an image of who we're supposed to be in the professional setting. Yeah. And we leave yep. a huge part of ourselves outside of work for all sorts of supposedly good ideas. So what was it you were discovering at that so, time?
0: So second example was about two to three years after I joined Cisco. I was operating in my present role, but I was living in Hong Kong, away from the center of headquarters. Relatively new executive. we were. The business was struggling a bit at that time, and we were really struggling to, to get the deliverables done. I was working... 14 hours a day. I would get up at six o'clock every morning to connect with the people in California and do my work until about 11 with them. And then I'd work all afternoon on the regional issues in Asia and some other of my own personal things. I just didn't feel things were going very well. One of my HR advisors, again, another one, Jane, who I still love today, she suggested I engage a coach, which I did, a wonderful woman named Barbara from Australia. Barbara and I had many intense sessions. She ran a really, really set of detailed 360 instruments on me. You may be aware of it, called the leadership circle. And it's a really, really intense set of of vehicles. What it showed was that there were some really outstanding things, but a whole lot of reactive behavior. And Barbara guided me through a series of sessions eventually, and by the way, she told me I was the only client that ever made her cry. It was very difficult. Uh, and it was difficult for me, too. But what I finally got to was a place where I realized that my actual secret intention, which was driven entirely by my fear of failure and the many things that were going on, the thing that I did to make me safe, my secret intention, that it was refined from very young age, was to drive for achievement and to drive for it myself and to become what I call Superman, Super Commander Jeff. And so I spent all of my energy trying to control what was happening and gather information, influence, and direct. And of course, it was exactly you know, the wrong thing, but she was able to scientifically show me, but also personally show me what was happening. But the critical thing there was to get in touch with why I was doing it. Mm. Because when I got in touch with you know, the need for the the validation and the achievement and the fear of losing it that was driven all the way back in childhood for the stuff we talked about earlier. When I became aware of that, it allowed me to release myself and forgive myself for things that I wasn't doing, that I would like to do. But it also made me realize that that was not something that was going to be easily overcome, that I was going to have to release something much bigger than just the behaviors. I was going to have to release to some degree and trust that a different mindset, a different intention was gonna have to change. So it was a little bit like changing your subconscious attention into something that was much more conscious in nature. And that was a huge learning. I mean that was a pivotal point in the way that I led and that I was effective as I just realized and even today, I mean there's many, many times I realize I go back there, because that's the safe place. That's what I used to do to make me feel safe. But uh, the more and more you rewire that behavior and you overlay your frontal cortex, if you will, over the subconscious stuff, the easier it gets to not do it. You just realize, oh, yeah, okay, that's, I get that. Let's not do that. Let's do this. And that was the biggest issue.
1: The beauty of the story you just shared there is because what I hear in this is the true nature of the leadership journey from the inside out, and how the the drive for success and achievement and control at some point is superimposed, is overtaken by an even bigger, more important impulse, which is the idea of self-growth and stepping up to raise your consciousness and self-insight and self-awareness such that you'll be able to operate at a higher level. What you're also describing in that is these are like the old operating system, Jeff, and the new operating system. And this is true in each one of us. When we are under stress, we tend to revert back to older operating system. And the part of the... Psychotechnology of hacking oneself from the old to the new operating system is to get the, the somatic signs, the somatic clues yeah. that you're actually shifting and be able to hack yourself before you become subject to that. Because actually, what you're describing, when you drop from the higher new operating system, more conscious Jeff, to the lower older operating system. We can almost call this a momentary unconsciousness. You forget to remember yes. the new evolved self. Yes. And effective leaders are highly aware to that internal Jiu-Jitsu and are able to reclaim that chosen behavior. And that's a, truly the, the journey of enlightened and conscious leadership.
0: Yeah, I think so. And I also think that it goes back to the concept of safety. If you're not conscious and you're not operating in a safe environment and, you're not, and people in your team are not, people go into that old operating framework when they feel fear. It's fear that drives that. But nothing else. Fight or flight. You know, very very, psych, very, very visceral. The other thing you talked about, the somatic stuff. I mean, I've learned to feel when I'm getting reactive. This tightness in the middle of your body, you go, and it's like irrational. It, you, why am I reacting to that? And that's a good sign that you're about to descend into that place. But it's it's a natural thing to do, and uh, you know, as a leader in an organization, recognizing it in yourself, uh, encouraging it in others, but also providing in general the environment where people don't feel like they got to go there, I think is the real important thing.
1: With all that you know today, and all that we are covering here. What advice would you give your 25-year-old self?
0: Well, okay. So first of all, uh, I'll, some of them are business-related and some are personal-related. Number one, I think the having a, a foundation of your life of real emotional support, grounding, uh, is critical. You Focusing your time on your relationships, your partner, the other people in your life, Having an ecosystem of people who actually can talk to you, help you, and support you may be the most important thing, Mm. not only for your professional and personal success, but for your life, your lifeline, uh, you know, the people around you. So I always, when I think about this in retrospect, say, you know, my relationship with my wife and the many people that I've described to you in this call that supported me, where they were really, really critical, I always didn't appreciate them. I always didn't cultivate them. I wish I'd appreciated them, and I wish I'd cultivated more, mm-hmm. much more in that than I did going back. I think it's really important to learn how to be a good teammate as well as a good leader. So lots and lots of young people like me who may be listening to this or twenty five or so, you know their aspiration, their focus immediately is to be on a, a, is to be a leader. I can tell you, you know, that example I gave you early in my IBM career in my mid-30s, being a teammate is every bit as important if not more important than being a good leader. And I wish that I had understood that because it would have prevented a lot of anxiety and it really would have helped me in the middle part of my career. I would encourage people to play to their strengths. Do what really, really energizes you regardless of what it is. So many people do things in their career because somebody else thinks they should do them, or they think they should do them, or they're doing them because they think it's going to lead to some other broader outcome. No one that I've ever met in senior leadership does everything. They major in something. They come from some place. What gives them the capability to grow in their career is a combination of things and circumstances, which may or may not be present in anybody's life, but you sure should be happy and engaged in whatever you're doing. So I would definitely, I did a lot of that in my career, but I would give that advice to people. I would tell 25-year-olds why I hire people and what I think is important. You know, it isn't what you know or who you know. It's what you can learn, what your willingness is to generally, you know, be engaged and curious with others and be a great teammate, and it's your mental agility and persistence that matters at the end of the day that's what I would make sure that people understand that that's what it is at the end of the day. Uh, You can acquire skills, you can acquire experiences. And then I think of this whole issue about uh, being accountable.
1: Mm.
0: You know, I think there is, sometimes I feel all through my adult life, one of the things that frustrates me the most in business and personal is accountability. You know, accept what it is that you own and really own it. Don't shade the truth when things don't go well. And I tell you, as a senior leader, one of the things I'm looking for in the debrief that doesn't go well, I'm looking for the, the person who's going to speak truth to power. Tell me what really happened. But more importantly, tell me what you're going to learn and don't let go of the ownership of it, of that issue while you're going through there. And I think if you're a leader, you've really, really got to look in the mirror constantly because fundamentally what happens around you is your accountability. So I think uh, accountability is something that is learned early in family but can be relearned. Uh, but it's really, really super important for people to do that. And I'll tell you, a large corporation can be a very complex and sometimes dehumanizing place. It can be a place where accountability can be stepped and sidestepped. And so many times, you know, when you look at uh, people across the company, they're aching for leaders Mm. to just be accountable for what's happening.
1: Yeah. If you were to lose, Jeff, all that you know, but keep only two ideas or two capabilities or two practices – what would be the two that you keep?
0: It's funny because the first one that comes to my mind is the one that I think is still underdeveloped. And that's the ability to create a real environment of safety and trust.
1: Mm. Uh,
0: You know, I think I could lose a lot of other technical skills. I could not be in the position I am today, but if you were the kind of person who could do that in the relationships and the places around you, regardless of what you were doing, People would want to be with you, you would be desired, and you would really help a lot of other people. So I think that's one, I think is, that I would really like to keep. If I went to a more of a business side, you know, as opposed to a, a leadership side, I think the, the skill to be able to understand and create uh, an effective repeating management system of information would be the other one that I would keep. I think if I carried those two things into almost any situation, you know, I probably would be, I would feel more comfortable. I think the people around me would feel good, but I also feel like those are very, very transferable
1: things. Yeah. Finally, where will you be in five years' time? What is it you're looking forward (laughs) to in five years?
0: You know that I'm going to be retiring shortly. That's publicly acknowledged. Where I hope to be in five years is at a very high level, I hope to be even more present and have even more joy in my life. I hope to be sharing uh, and loving my grandchildren and my family more. I look forward to robust physical health that will allow me to continue my life. Uh, I look very much forward to leaning in and helping a charity that I'm very, very deeply involved in which is uh, supports the survivors of burns. And the accident I mentioned at the foundry was a burn that almost killed me. So that's a very passionate area of mine. And as I said, I hope also to be traveling and leaning into things in my life that for many, many years I've had to say no to. And I hope that I can find other ways to support and help uh, the development of the people that I've been in touch with throughout my professional life. I love many of them, uh, and I I really look forward to continuing my relationships with them.
1: There is a huge amount that uh, you shared here today, uh, Jeff. This is truly a a very rich uh, exploration. As we bring this to lending, what one parting wisdom uh, do you wish to offer to people listening to create new futures?
0: (laughs) Wow. I'll just tell you the first thing that comes to my mind, and, I, and it's a phrase that my wife uses in her work. Actions follow intention. So I think a lot of times ensuring that your that your intentions are purposeful, positive, aligned, and conscious, and maintaining your intention in virtually every situation is perhaps the most important thing. One never knows when any job is done so uh maintaining the intention both you know intellectually but emotionally uh, is in maintaining the consciousness around that i think would be the thing i would say because it will your actions will follow that
1: thank you thank you jeff thank you here we are we've landed this create new futures journey And it's your time to take action, to create your new future. Here are a few steps you can take this week. First, Jeff offered that the work of leadership is building the right team, connecting them well and enabling them to produce results. He discovered that the way to lead is from a place of ownership and love. Love of the business and love of the team. What must you do to build your team? How will you bring your love and passion to your team and to the work you do together? Second, Jeff navigated his career by at critical points making the unexpected, even unreasonable move catalyzed by his listening to his intuition that led him to take the risk of going to China and taking a new role in China. And that then opened tremendous opportunities for him. And that in the process also made him much more adaptable and resilient. Where must you listen to your intuition? Including, where must you be prepared to make the the unexpected, the unreasonable move, because it will lead you to new, greater opportunities? Third, the biggest thing Jeff focused on in advancing his career was building trust and partnerships with key people, people that could help and enable his success. And he practiced listening to them, recognizing that by investing in them, he was investing in himself. How will you practice high-quality engagement and listening to key people in your ecosystem? This cannot just happen by chance. It requires an intentional effort and purpose. Where can you demonstrate that kind of intent this week? One more thing. You can reach me directly by phone and on email to explore your purpose and to discover how we can help you and your team create new future today. See you next time.